Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I have time traveled to be your second co-host, John Polking. He is not the titular time traveler's wife. No. Nor is he the titular time traveler. No, I don't have as good of a butt. This is a podcast where we review TV shows that only last one season. And also the hook is that we kind of decide at the end if we would renew them or not. Uh, that's the hook, right, John? Yeah, it makes us special. Yeah. Uh, today we are reviewing 2022's The Time Traveler's Wife on HBO based on the best-selling novel. And this is the most recently canceled show that we've reviewed so far. Right, yeah, John? I think I texted you about the cancellation two weeks before we're recording this. About? Yes, yeah, and we we jumped pretty much right on top of it. Would you say we jumped uh, in time? I wouldn't say that. Why would I say that? I don't know. I just was trying to be on theme. Didn't really work though. I'm I'm forcing it. This show did feel a little bit like Ordinary Joe all over again, <laughs> uh, but we'll get into that later. John, what are you watching right now? <laughs> I was thinking about this, and I've been so obsessed with watching The Time Traveler's Wife over a little bit that I haven't really watched much besides Below Deck, which I won't get into again right now, at least until I finish Sailing Yacht. But we'll get we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But what I did do, I did see John Mulaney do stand-up um, last week. And as part of prep for that, I watched every single stand-up and performative thing that John Mulaney has done on Netflix. And... That was you do love him. Just one of the most rewatchable for me as a comedian. His writing is so good and everything is so generalized but specific that it always feels fresh to me for some reason. I don't know why. There's some things that I can recite entire two and a half minute bits of. There's other things that I have completely forgotten about. In either case, it just makes me so happy. No matter what uh, as a performer, I really enjoy his body language. Yeah. He really knows how to like move his head in the right way or like kind of the way he like turns. Mm. He'll turn on a punchline or on a sentence that's like, uh, what's the deal with that? He knows and how to deliver. For he sure. really does. He has great delivery. Yeah. Uh, how many times have you seen him live? Two, I think, only. I only saw Kid Gorgeous and this latest one, which is his From Scratch tour. And it's it's a different approach because I'm not going to get too into it because, you know, there's a lot of sort of privacy around what is included in that. But he does make reference to his lack of energy and how related that is to his chemical dependencies. So... It's a different tone, but it still very, very much made me laugh. Oh, is this his first special, his first tour post-rehab? Post-rehab, post-boy son. Yeah, a lot happened. A lot happened. But it was, it was a great time. What about you? What are you watching? 
I watched Eyes Wide Shut for the first time. Me and Natalie did uh, for our short film that we're making. It our production designer had some inspirations from Eyes Wide Shut for what it should look like. So I had never seen it, and she saw it like in high school. So we rewatched it, and it is a trip and a half. Um, I loved it though. I loved it. How do you pull off? making something with such a slow pace that feels so impending the whole time. Like there will be blood, you know, nothing's happening when he's just staring at a sunset, but you feel like someone's eyes could get gouged out at any moment because they're wide shut. Nice. Thank you. Uh, Also, I really enjoyed his use of color a lot of interesting blue, green, and red going on. See, as a colorblind uh, person, I find what you said colorist and offensive to me. So it really, it really grinds my gears when you take the time to call out specific things that you know that I can't differentiate. It feels like an attack. It is an attack. Then and I'm I, bragging. I took it appropriately then. I feel good about that feel good about my reaction to this. I have never been a Stanley Kubrick person. No. No. I I, mean, I get that you don't like 2001, even though I've famously never seen it, but I will in a theater in August. Great. I'm sure you're going to love it. I am. I've always been like, because you've always said it's very slow, and I'm like, I will wait to see it until I'm I'm in a theater. That's when I'm going to see it. That's fair. Our friend Robbie, me and him have almost exactly the same movie taste, I feel like, except for this one thing, which is 2001. He loves it. I can't stand it. And there's things I like. I like Clockwork Orange. I think parts of Full Metal Jacket are really good. But overall, like Kubrick just not, Kubrick just does not do it for me. What about The Shining? I think it's overrated. Really? Again, it's the, I think he needs an editor. And that's, it's the, it is that pacing. It's that sort of concrete mixing level pacing that just sort of gets me. And I, there's some slower pace things that I can sort of get into the rhythm of, but for him, it just feels very showy and not servicing the characters more so his own sort of style. It is, everything is a part of the story overall it's not about characters necessarily. It's it's a lot about vibe, yeah. you know, all of his movies, except for maybe Dr. Strangelove. That is probably my favorite Kubrick, yeah. Yeah, I would say... Because it's like an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I love Dr. Strangelove, and Full Metal Jacket and The Shining are, I think, legitimately very good movies. Actually, Eyes Wide Shut, too. I I defend it. I only saw it once, but dang, I really enjoyed it. Again, I'm not watching I'm not watching his movies over and over again. Uh except maybe Doctor Strangelove. There it is. <laughs> well, what do you say we get into it, John? You know what? We've got a lot of time to cover in this episode, but I think Right now, the most important time is now. And now is showtime. Five, four, three, 
two, one, showtime! Love and loss are inextricably linked. Love is loss. Life is not forever and it's not for long. Happy ever after is a terrible lie. It's happy for a while. That's what you get. You are dancing on the edge of a cliff and you will lose your footing. But the music's still going. So what you gonna do? A quote by series creator Stephen Moffat. Despite an audience score of 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, the show was canceled two weeks after the finale aired. And of course, that show is The Time Traveler's Wife on HBO, airing May to June 2022. A six-episode, I feel like they could have made this a miniseries, probably, in like six to eight episodes, given the source material, just given like the general pattern of how books are being adapted into longer form series. But no, there was supposed to be a continuation of this story. Oh yeah, this uh, first season only gets through about a third of the book. Oh, okay. This is based on a book from, I believe, 2003? Correct. That was adapted into a movie from 2009 starring Rachel McAdams and Eric Bana. And then 13- Eric Bana, that's how you know it was the aughts, you know? He still had that good street cred from Hulk. That's right. The most famous Eric Banner role and the most celebrated one, for sure. Ang Lee's most celebrated film as well. Mm -hmm. And we get 13 years later, six episodes of The Time Traveler's Wife. It is a very high concept romance. I listened to an interview with Stephen Moffat, the creator, the show creator. And he addressed actually what you just brought up, how it feels like this should be a limited series, but he actually like kind of argued with the interviewer about that because (laughs) he's British. And so to him, every season should only be six episodes of something. (laughs) And he didn't even really know what limited series meant and they had to like define it for him. And he was like, no, this was always planning to go on because this is only the first third of the book. What else has Stephen Moffat created again? Didn't he oh, do he's Sherlock? Big time. He created Sherlock. He was the showrunner for Doctor Who for many years. But most importantly, John, he created Coupling. Oh, duh. Oh, I love Coupling. I know you do. And mm-hmm. I can't believe Coupling just keeps coming up on our podcast. It's a one and done. It's a weird quirky sitcom that's really gross and stuff and so of course Stephen Moffat's involved wait the British one was one and done too no just the the U.S. one no he well he created both it's a slantways connection to the one and done averse yes exactly and uh, the other creative mind behind this was David Nutter who directed all six episodes he was best known for directing Game of Thrones And he said that this was the story he's always wanted to tell. Hmm. And that even if the new Game of Thrones shows came calling, but he had to do this show, he would do this show instead. Did you watch the interviews with the cast and like Moffat and Nutter after each of these episodes? David Nutter was super passionate talking about the story itself. It was really... Compelling. I would not recommend, if you do watch the show, all six episodes available on HBO Max now, if you do watch the show, it's not worth it to watch the 
you know, behind quote unquote behind the scenes stuff. That's oh, at the I never end. watch that stuff. I usually do because they I like the sort of insight that sometimes the actors bring to the characters or that the creatives talk about their motivations and what this means for the larger arc. Basically, the behind the scenes stuff for this show, it just seemed like they were regurgitating everything that they had happened. It's like, so Henry's time traveling again. You're like, great, great insight, bro. Thank you. Glad I wasted six minutes of my time there. Yeah, they are two really passionate people about this book. They love this book. Mm. And it sounds like they've been thinking about making it a TV show for at least 10 years, if not longer. Um, Stephen Moffat actually wrote an episode of Doctor Who that kind of ripped off the plot. Oh, really? And then Audrey Neffenegger, she, in her next book wrote about her main character watching that episode of Doctor Who. And then Stephen Moffat was like, oh no, she knows what I'm doing. (laughs) And then he contacted her and they became friends. Oh, that's sweet. I like that. Right. Like clearly they both liked each other's work. Game recognized game. Yeah. Exactly. And then they became friends and they talked about making it a show for many years until it, it finally came together. Um, one more note on David Nutter is that he has he's a veteran TV director. That fun fact, he's directed everything from the X-Files to the Flash, but other notable one and dones, John, I just had to bring this up. Jack and Bobby, oh Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and 1992's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. No. Which I didn't even know was a thing until I now. thought that was animated. I thought there no. was a Bill and Ted. Maybe there was another. Oh, there was another one. Oh, my gosh. No, there was, a. I think, an animated series of Bill and Ted that went on that for a couple sense. seasons, but not a live action one. That's hilarious. That just screams Ferris Bueller TV show to me. David Nutter loves determinalist time travel. Not the, not the kind of time travel where you can affect the future, but stuff that's preordained. He loves everything needs to fit into that box. And Stephen Moffat was like, I don't love being an adapter for hire because he's done, (laughs) you know, Sherlock Holmes. He's done Doctor Who. He's done this. And uh, I think a couple other things that were adapted. And he he just talked about how he's just a huge fanboy and that when a project comes up that he loves, he's totally down to just make it into a TV show or a movie. And he's he never meant for his career to go this way. And I just thought that was really interesting. He seems to really love character. He really loves putting sort of quirky, interesting characters in very high concept situations and very stressful ones as well. At least just like comparing this with like who with Sherlock with that stuff. I think that it definitely runs along the same track. And he talked about how much he loved this book because it's written by a romance writer mm-hmm. and not someone that's super into sci-fi. No, I was reading about the novel and it seemed like Audrey Niffenegger sort of based it on her romantic relationships. And so it does have that sort of humanist quality to this very big swing of an idea. At times it really does ring true, I think, in the, in the show as well. And now a word from our sponsors. 
Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. I think we got to get into this show, John. Yeah. Uh, the only way I know how is through the characters, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Henry for a sec. So Henry is the titular time traveler, but it's not on purpose. He has a genetic defect that randomly and uncontrollably launches him to the past and sometimes the future. Usually it's to an emotional time in his life and he's always naked. Always naked. So much but in this show. My goodness. And one wiener. Did you did you catch the wiener? Uh actually, John, there's two wieners. There's Thank two wieners? You. Oh, I missed the first one then. I know. We were both looking out. I uh I am happy that in the show, usually I'm like, ah, pretty boy they cast, but I'm like, he's naked so often in the show. I am glad that they cast someone who's in good shape. Yeah. You really get desensitized to it after like the sixth or seventh naked scene but uh, our our naked boy blue uh played by theo james who's more famous i think as a movie star he was in the divergent series i also recognize him he's kind of the villain in the in-betweeners movie and i know that this is a bit of a trope to say but he is genuinely like ruggedly handsome i feel like he's got a very sort of big furrowed brow and a lot of sort of... He's got the jaw and the five o'clock shadow. Mm-hmm. But never a beard. Always shadow, which I think is fun. He doesn't have that like sort of... It's not, he's not, it's not like he's some sort of big burly man. He's just a guy that seems pissed off at the world 24-7. <laughs> which works for this character who is literally thrown by his genetic defect across time with no rhyme or reason ever. Right. So getting into the time travel element of things really quickly, Henry, he starts to time travel when he's eight. And it's while he's in bed, I think. Yeah. He says to his mom, hey, I really want to go back to the field museum. And she's like, no, you can't. And he's like, maybe we could go back tonight. And then he falls asleep and then he shows up in the Field Museum three hours earlier with a future version of himself. Right. At first, he doesn't know it. He keeps getting trained by this mysterious time traveler who eventually reveals that he's just an older version of him that has come back from the future to train him in how to survive time travel. Because every time he tri- time travels... He's still moving however he's moving. So if he's in a car and he time travels, he'll be going 60 miles per hour just in his new time, naked, midair, landing, wherever. So he ends up time traveling to uh, the sides of buildings and having to you know, cling to the roof. He time travels in midair sometimes and like falls two stories. A lot of times it's downstairs. Yeah. And- Again, always, it's naked. Every single nude. And somehow, he's always sweaty, too. He's got a glisten on him constantly. 
Right. And he throws up almost every time after he time travels. But it also makes him very hungry. That's like a big part of it. And he also could kind of tell when he's going, too. He kind of like coughs a couple times. It's like a sort of thing. And the thing I liked about the sort of structure of the time travel, too, was that generally he would go back to the age that he was when he sort of first left and that sort of time period. So he was going forwards, he was going backwards, but he still was kind of on a general line too. He talked about how he never really goes more than like three different places before going back to where he started. And so there was at least like that, just from a narrative perspective, it was nice that you could kind of see him on a little bit of a line, even though the line has a lot of holes in it. He is still living a linear life. It's just that sometimes he is plucked out of that life and moved to a different point in his life. And then he's put back sometimes a couple minutes, sometimes a couple hours, or even a day later than when he disappeared. Mm -hmm. And he says in the beginning, he's like, I needed to learn three things. I needed to learn how to run. I needed to learn how to fight. And I needed to learn how to steal. So he is constantly, again, he probably wouldn't have these issues if he wasn't constantly nude, but he does know how to find the back of a bar where people keep their clothes and he, uh, he likes to take them. Yeah. Or he's always finding himself in the past and is like, Hey, I need some clothes. And they're like, "Ugh, you, uh, what I love about this show is that there's so many interactions where he helps himself in the past, but unless he's a kid, his younger self, like in his 20s, usually resents his older self. Yeah, They're always insulting each other and being like, you need to grow up and cut your hair. And he's like, you need to chill out. You know, two, they just hate each other. Yeah, two different versions of him can occupy the same space. Actually, as they often do. They often do. And... I do like that sort of father-son dynamic between the two of them. And I think another thing that's really important about the way that this time travel is structured is that none of them can change anything. They still have, quote-unquote, free will. But everything that has been done will be done, and vice versa. Like, nobody can change something that has happened in order to affect a future version of him's lifestyle. Like, that is completely out of the question immediately. Except for stock tips and winning the lottery. But again, that's built into his knowledge of the future. It doesn't affect his future self differently than what would have already happened. Sure. Like I think it, he was always going to he was always going to have those lotto numbers, which is how he funds his lifestyle. He was always going to have those stock tips, which again he uses and he helps his friends benefit as well. But There's nothing that can be changed. And I think that's most crucial with the way his mom is so brutally killed early in his childhood. A big part of his storyline is that he was in the car with his mom, who is a famous singer, and she is decapitated in a car accident with him in the back seat. And then as a fear response, he time travels to basically five seconds earlier outside of the car. And then 
many times throughout his life, he will time travel back to this car accident. So when they go back to the car accident, there's Henry at 40, Henry at 35, Henry at 28, Henry at 15. I counted uh, 20 Henrys, at least according to the sort of titles that they put on the, the text that they put on the screen. But yeah. So they literally, he has to relive the worst moment of his life many times. And he's so used to it at a certain point. It's some Final Destination stuff, too. Like, it is somebody, it's like a sign falling off the back of a truck that she gets rear-ended into, and then it slides off and kills her like that. It is a gruesome death, one that affects him greatly. Well, they show kind of the aftermath, too. They don't. there's a lot of blood. (laughs) Right, but it's not like Lovecraft Country, you know? No, you do not see the moment of contact but you no. see everything before and after that, <laughs> including yes. the young child splattered with blood. So that's the time traveler, John. But what about his wife? It is Claire. funny that you referred to him as the titular time traveler when the show's title is the time traveler's wife. Yeah, there are six episodes of this, and the first two episodes are pretty much all about Henry. I mean, obviously, Claire is a part of it, but... By the end of episode two, I made a note that said, I thought this was called The Time Traveler's Wife, not The Time Traveler. (laughs) And episode three finally gets really deep into Claire's story. Mm -hmm. She is just this redhead from Chicago, even though uh, she doesn't really know how to put mustard on a hot dog, but (laughs) that's a different story. As a young girl, she is visited by an older imaginary friend named Henry. The love between them is not so imaginary as their paternal relationship eventually becomes a loving one once he reveals to her that he is actually her future husband. Yeah, so she meets him when she is six uh, for the first time, and he has already been married to her for some time and knows her. And he doesn't... uh, There is a bit of an ick factor. Oh, there's a lot of an ick factor here where, I mean, I can explain it, but if you look online, a lot of people have a problem with this and they they call it grooming, which they do address in the show. But He does literally say this is grooming about his own behavior. Right. But also he cannot control the fact that he keeps time traveling back to see her as a child. And he also makes rules for himself where... You know, he's just kind of giving her advice and stuff for most of those years. Plays a lot of checkers. A lot of checkers. Exactly. The fact that he's around all the time, kind of in the first or second episode, she says, you made me become attracted to you. Like, he was her sex symbol growing up, even though... She he doesn't meet her until he's 28 and she's 20, but she's known him her entire life because the older version of him has gone back in time and visited her many times. Again, he cannot control that. No. So he's just a a naked older guy just kind of playing checkers with a six-year-old girl. I think it's completely normal, natural. We shouldn't be destigmatizing this. I'm kidding. It's a little creepy and gets even creepier when she becomes an adolescent and starts to really throw herself at him. But her Claire 
as an older adult is played by Rose Leslie, who is most famous certainly for Game of Thrones. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Right. Uh, she's. I guess she's in Downton Abbey too, the first season. Yeah, and Theo James was in an episode of Downton Abbey too. Oh, and he's also in Jane Austen's Sanditon. Cool. I, I don't know how to say that. Claire is experiencing this first paternal love and then sort of romantic love. He he visits her a total of 152 times before she even before he meets her for the first time, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. And he writes down this, he sort of dictates these series of dates that he is going to see her. So she always knows when he's going to be there. But I never know how she knows what time of that day he's going to be there. But they Yeah, they didn't get into that. But also, there's so much time travel stuff happening. Do we really need to know if it's 2 p.m. or 5 p.m.? <laughs> we just need to know that it's in that clearing. It is That's in, right. It is in a clearing in the woods behind her house because she is a very wealthy, she's from a very wealthy family. And so they have a large estate. So Stephen Moffat brought up how the time traveling are, there are narrative rules to the time travel, but there's not scientific rules. So don't, don't worry about that. Yeah. Don't try to solve that nonsense. It, It won't do you any good. The strange thing to me about the time traveling is for the most part, it's times in his life he goes back to that were very emotional. But in this case, he's always going back to see her as a child, even though he was never there. And in some cases, he goes to the future, too. But um, I don't get that. Like, is there here's what I'm thinking. And this goes into the grooming thing a little bit. Stephen Moffat brought up how if you I also don't mean to say his name so many times. Uh <laughs> He brought up how, like, if you see a picture of your, and we're both married, if you see Mm -hmm. a picture of your wife as a child, you have love for that picture, even if it's not in a sexual context. There's a huge difference always between love and attraction. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, he, I think that Henry always goes back to see her because he does have so much love for her. And We'll get into it. He knows he's going to die at a certain point. So I think it's almost his way maybe of spending more time with her or something yeah. like that, that he keeps being drawn to going back and seeing her. Um, but I don't know. That's the only thing that really doesn't feel like it fits as much in the narrative rules of time travel. I think it fits in in that sense because he also is able to travel to see his parents before they ever had him and it's because he has that sort of connection to them in that sense Uh, even though his mom died when he was very young he gets to meet his mom when he is older at at least a few times well but he's a baby in those scenarios though like when he sees them at the park so at least he that was a moment in his life yeah, but even before that, too, he gets to see his mom and dad's first kiss. He is right, there when right. his dad proposes to his mom. He still has that sort of tether to them, even when he's not necessarily around. And similarly, he's able to time travel in the future when he, after he dies, seemingly. Right. Um, 
And the death part, we should bring up that he keeps seeing this pool of blood. So parts of his body can time travel without him, like a tooth or a foot, I think. And then sometimes he'll see a pile of blood and they're all like, you know, it's coming. You know that you're going to die at some point. And Claire will be like, how do you deal with the fact that you know you're going to die? And he's like, we all know we're going to die. What's the difference? Yeah, it's very much a message about, you know, living in the moment, because whether you're experiencing time linearly or in a completely chaotic fashion, what you have is now. And I always like messages like that. It, the, the appreciation of the present is something that makes me happy. It was like what we were talking about with Everything Everywhere All at Once. We were talking about that movie a couple weeks ago. There's all this chaos, and if you are able to sort of take stock of what you have now, it, you'll be able to enjoy yourself significantly more rather than worrying about all the other outcomes that could happen. And that is the part of this sort of time travel tale that I really did like. I didn't like, I like that they, there was nothing that could be changed, that everything was set. And so, and he recognized that so early in his life, like shortly after his mom died. They do, he kind of, we don't need to get into the details of it, but he basically has an exercise with his younger self about how he can't change anything. And right. he knows that. And that just makes all those moments that much more precious. And it makes, it makes their relationship interesting too, because that was one sort of thing I liked about their relationship was that when she met him for the first time, he already had all this love for her. When he met her for the first time, he was 28. She was 20. And she was like, I've been waiting for you my whole life. And he's like, well, I can't wait to bone you. And then they do. And then he's just this kind of jerk that she doesn't really like. She doesn't like the person that he is. She knows that she's going to love the person that he becomes. But they still have to get over that sort of hurdle of balancing the future expectations of what a person can be versus who the person is right now. Yeah, that is an interesting part where she has to learn to love the younger 28-year-old him that is a jerk, kind of a jerk. You know, you, you see him in different facets, but they definitely paint it as he's a wiser, nicer, gentler, older man. And in his 20s, he has a girlfriend, Ingrid, and they're like getting drunk and screaming at each other in the street all the time. And they have a very tumultuous relationship. And once he meets Claire, you know, they, he grows up. Yeah. And But in order to grow up, they do still have to genuinely fall in love. And she has to learn to love that version of him as opposed to the older version of him, which she had known growing up. Yeah. And that applies to their friends as well. Uh, Claire lives with her roommate, Sharice, and Sharice uh, has a boyfriend, Gomez, who I didn't really recognize Sharice from anything, but Gomez is Desmond Borges, who I know from You're the Worst, which I love him in. He's got a, he's got a very distinct cadence. He, he talks like this a lot. He, does it, he plays it up a lot more in You're the Worst, but he still has glimmers of that in Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah, and they're an interesting crew because once they meet Henry, they're one of the only people that Henry tells he's a time traveler to mm -hmm. because they catch him 
there's like two of them in the apartment and the jig is up pretty quickly. Uh, also, Ingrid storms in and there's an interesting scene where it's the two Henrys, the current girlfriend, Ingrid, Ingrid and the future wife, Claire, with the roommates all having dinner together. And that's just so funny to me. That that was a great scene. Yeah, that, that episode that you're talking about is episode four. So we already get all this like good kind of good exposition about, you know, where these characters have been, how these rules work and stuff. And then the epi- fourth episode is just like farce, which I, you know, there's some slamming doors. There's some people shouting things that other people are misinterpreting. And I, 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 I dug that sort of tonal turn from mm-hmm. the sort of heavier drama that a lot of the six episodes are. Yeah. And then the season rounds out with they each meet each other's families. You know, Henry's dad has become an alcoholic since his mom died and they don't really get along super well. Uh, Claire's parents are like, what's up with this guy who keeps disappearing? They're super waspy too. Oh, they're very waspy. And he, right, so she has to cover for the fact that he's showing up late to lunch with a bunch of bruises, and it was after she said they got into an argument, so her family thinks she, like, beat him. Yeah, uh, that was a weird scene. Which is scene. a very weird scene that they never really... They don't really resolve, yeah. They don't have any sort of resolution to it. They do have, she does have a real one-note jerk of a brother, too. Yeah. Uh, he's, I did, yeah, I did not he's like just that like, guy. you're a jerk. Be a jerk. Got it. That's his direction. Yeah. Just be um, smug as all heck. And then the last episode, the season and the series ends on their wedding when younger him time travels to the future, gets into an argument with future him, punches him, and then future him disappears back to the wedding day and future him is the one that marries Claire while past him, AKA current him is the one watching their wedding video with Claire while future him is gone getting married. Oh boy. There's I think so I many did different... that right. I think you did. Yeah. If, if you were able to follow Ian's run on sentence, I think he did a very good job. <laughs> And the only thing that they really leave uh, hanging in the air, like it, it ends with kind of a cheesy wedding scene, uh, if I'm going to be honest. And then they play, they sing, uh, give me to the church on time from, is that my fair lady? uh, I don't know, but they're all having way too good of a time for singing, get me to the church on time. (laughs) If you ask me, Uh, but the only thread that's really left going into season two is this thing where they cannot keep get pregnant they keep having miscarriages because because we can't have a drama show that doesn't doesn't have some sort of of your personal tragedy exactly we can't have any drama shows that don't deal with difficulties conceiving or some sort of tragedy along those lines my gosh i keep running into this why is it such a useful device for tv shows to lean on as because you you could tell john it's a tragic situation and it's pretty easy to just squeeze a lot of drama out of it yeah 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 freaking stephen moffat um well i actually blame 
the oh yeah that is Audrey Niffenegger but the interesting thing is that every time he gets her pregnant the fetuses time travel Mm -hmm. and then they basically keep having miscarriages because the fetuses keep time traveling it's really a weird tragic thread to end on that she she has all this artwork about babies and uteruses and it's just i don't want to say disturbing it is it's 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 difficult that's what it is and we could get into it when we talk about why it was canceled and what season two could have looked like because there is definitely more to the story and there was more resolution on that front but other than that, I mean, it's these two characters kind of finding themselves and it does really leave more of a life to still be examined. And they do a good job, I think, too, of repeating situations and scenarios and showing where, like, one Henry has come from entering the situation, where Claire is at in her life based on who, which Henry she's interacting with. They show a lot of scenes over and over again with, sort of different POVs and stuff to sort of paint a, a fuller picture of something beyond just what you are experiencing initially, which I do always like as sort of a story thing. You know, we all get our inspiration from Rashomon, always. It's hot. Romantic novels. That or Sliding Door. Sliding Doors. Exactly. See our Ordinary Joe episode. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, we still have a lot to talk about, but I think it's time for us to get into the Dunzo Awards. But before we do that, I say we take a quick commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to all of our shows. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the most. It could be the weirdest. Whatever it is, we have time traveled just to this moment to deliver verdicts on different elements of the time traveler's wife. We each get two Dunzo Awards to give out to whatever our heart desires, wherever in time and space our heart leads us. For right now, for right here, Ian Thomas Hamilton, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award is the Weirdest Storyline Award, which is Henry's best friend Gonzo is in love with Claire and everyone knows it and no one seems to care. Ian, come on. What's his name? Gonzo. No. What is it? Ian, we've been over this before. Gomez! What in the heck goes on in your brain, bud? Dude, I cannot do names. Jeez. His name is Gomez for the listeners. I I mean, might as well be Gonzo. It is a he is a bit of a Gonzo character, but he his name, his Christian name. I can't believe is I said Gomez. Go- I was just like Gonzo. I don't know. He's a weird guy. You 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 doubled down too. You said I wrote it down as Gonzo, and then I <laughs> didn't even know I made a mistake. 
You also, I saw your notes. You spelled Claire like four different ways. Yeah, I realized the right way to spell it and then was too lazy to go back and <laughs> change it. I was like, I know, I know what it is. Okay, so talk about Gomez. Talk about his storyline. Yeah, so Gonzo's a weird dude. <laughs> he, uh, he. Stop confusing the listeners. Call him Gomez. Okay, so Grover's a weird dude. <laughs> he is dating Claire's roommate, but then sleeps with Claire. And they're keeping this big secret from Claire. Before and Claire meets, before Henry meets Claire for the first time. So before Claire and yes. Henry start dating. I do want it's to It's kind of this, this big story point where there's two years between Claire seeing older Henry and then meeting younger Henry. And older Henry's like, live your life, be with people, make mistakes, do whatever. You'll meet me when you meet me. Don't wait for me, essentially, because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. We'll find each other. So she does have some rendezvous, some romances in between. And she gets really involved with these roommates um, Mm -hmm. because she sleeps with Grover. And then (laughs) it's like the secret between the two of them to keep from his girlfriend. And then she sleeps with his girlfriend. And then that's never really resolved, actually. Does she Um, sleep with Charisse? Oh, yeah, because Sharice kisses her. Yeah, I knew they kissed. And she turns her away, and then she wakes up next to her in bed. I must have missed that part. Uh, Yeah, you must have been making yourself a cup of tea or something, John. You looked away. You probably heard it, but weren't looking at the screen. Uh, Mm. Yes, so they've all slept together. And then they meet Henry, and then... Gomez tells Claire he's in love with her. And Claire's like, yeah, but whatever. And then Sharice is like, we all know that Gomez is in love with you. And she's like, yeah, I know. And then when Henry comes along and him and Gomez don't get along, but older Henry's like, this guy's going to be your best friend. Then Gomez is like, yeah, but I love Claire. And younger Henry's like, What's the deal with that? And older Henry's like, don't worry about it. G- Gomez loves Claire and nobody cares and it's not a big deal. And they just talk about it so nonchalantly. It just bothers me. It's so well, strange. I assume it's going to co- It would have come up in season two or three, but come on. It was, it's all part of that sort of like determinalist thing. Like everything is, I don't even know if I'm using determinalist right, but whatever. I'm just going to keep saying it wrong if I am. The idea that Claire knows that she'll never end up with Gomez. And so, therefore, by the time Henry rolls around, because Gomez is so quickly introduced to Henry's time travel, he knows he'll never end up with Claire. And I think that's why people don't care as much. It's because Gomez's feelings don't ever change. He still loves Claire throughout seemingly throughout his life but he has just kind of resigned himself to the fact that he will be friends with both of them because that is what is determined although and he even says henry's like oh so you're just waiting around for me to die so you can swoop in on claire yeah there's only one problem with that is that you being gone will devastate me which was a pretty nice line but then you see Gomez comforting Claire at presumably Henry's funeral. 
And you're like, okay, is he swooping in? Could be. I think, well, I think he almost certainly would be. But Oh, I would be. <laughs> if I were Gomez, I'd be swooping in. If oh, you were I'd Gomez, your name would be Grover. Yeah, Gomez, Grover, Gonzo. Mm-hmm. The third. I think that's a... You should well, work he's a on lawyer, that. so it'd be Esquire. <laughs> uh, John, what is your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo goes to... Actually, it's kind of a it's kind of one of those special awards, you know, like a lifetime achievement or something. It is the Trippy Spotlight Award. What? And that will go to Henry's many dalliances into his future death that he has before his wedding. So Henry as we said, Henry, I gotta young, say, this is a confusing award, but I'm here for the explanation. It's a confusing award, but it's just a reason for me to spotlight the seed that I found to be very effective. So Henry is about to marry Claire, and he is traveling a lot more accidentally because he is so stressed out, and he can't control it, and he's worried that he is going to time travel on his wedding day, and he's going to miss his wedding day. So he's like, hey, drug dealer friend of mine, give me some of that morphine plus. He says, what is the plus? And his drug deal friend says, don't worry about it. But he takes the pill anyway. And that sort of leads him to time travel a lot of times over the course of a very short period of time. And sometimes he time travels to the same place twice in a row, but just to different locations. But that is where he sort of gets these visions of himself in the future, in their future home, next to this tree that he knows. He sees himself in a wheelchair. He sees his own funeral. I just found that to be a really, for the most part, the show is very standardly shot. There isn't too many directorial flourishes or anything like that. But there's this one shot in it of the tree. not just the tree, but he's mm, like standing. He's standing near the tree. Well, I think. Oh, I think we are thinking of the same thing, just different parts of it. Because he is standing in his backyard and he sees this female figure that is presumably Claire, and there's this big spotlight behind her, so she's completely backlit. And then this huge gust of leaves like blows in his face, and it's just this really pretty but scary sight. I just found it to be so compelling visually that I wanted to call it out. Oh, and that goes into another thread that would have been season two. Spoiler alert. Turn it off if you're planning on reading this book. That's not Claire. That's their future daughter. Mm-hmm. Which you kind of get from the shot that it's like, is that a child or is that Claire? Yeah. And this is in the midst of him being like, it's impossible for me to have a child. Yeah. So, you know, you you start to get that he they have become hopeless at that point. But having seen that image, you know that there is hope, even though they don't have any at that point. Yeah. Uh, a lot which is powerful. On. Yeah. But actually, then they, they show the shot of the tree. I think later in that scene and they just lit it really well. Yeah. Which absolutely. stood out to me because, like you said, it's shot pretty standardly it's like 
a big, I think as far as a romance novel is concerned, they filmed it in a way that made it feel like a romance novel. Yeah. Right. The, the, and titles the soundtrack, of, the titles of the show, like the title sort of credit, the opening credits of every show are these long, slow motion shots, usually of Claire at different ages running through this field, presumably to meet different points of Henry in her life, different ages of Henry throughout her life. And it does feel very like movie cinematic sweeping, you know, Fabio hair blowing through the wind sort of thing. And even the shot that they usually land on or a variant of it with her feet and like his clothes next to her is a homage to the, one of the covers of the time traveler's wife book, Mm. which I thought was pretty cool too. So they do have some nice visual flourishes, but I just found that scene to be really kind of scary and creepy and moving. I really liked it. Uh, Ian, what is your second Dunzo award? Uh, Not as creepy and moving as your second Dunzo, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, My award is the late season reveal award. And that goes to episode six, finally seeing some Full frontal male nudity. Finally. Five episodes of being totally butt naked. And I'm thinking, how can this? He is so naked so often. (laughs) And you only ever see his chiseled butt. And I was just like, man, this is, you know, it just feels impossible for them to film him being this naked this frequently without. And not like in the shadows either. He is well lit. Very often. Right. Exactly. That it's just kind of, it's not strange. It just felt like a matter of time. And that ah, it was time. I don't know. I don't know. Right. It was interesting to me that they waited until episode six to uh, get any frontal male nudity in there. And it's pretty quick. It's not, it's like mid action. He's falling down some stairs. Yeah. And uh, in the other one, he's like, he's like squatting or something. Mm, I missed the squat. Mm, I saw, I yeah. saw the stair peen. I did not no, see the stair peen for the sure. But the squat, there was like dangle because oh. he's in like an emotional scene. And I only really bring it up because it's, he's emotionally naked as well. He's in a very vulnerable position. And I think that is why. Like the falling down the stairs was done kind of for, I don't know if it was for humor, but maybe it was just to be like, show a little bit more of the reality that he deals with. And then the second one felt like a purpose. It was like, this is a a naked, sad person in front of you. And we're not being naked for the sake of, it's funny that he's always naked this time. Like this has an emotional purpose to it. And I thought that was interesting that they waited that long to do that. Yeah, especially because episode two, you get to see 16-year-old version of him giving 16-year-old version of him some oral pleasures. Yes, which he says, is he's like, well, you would too, if you had the opportunity. I did like that, how he kept saying, if when one is presented the opportunity... (laughs) Yeah, he's like, it was just, it was an opportunity that came up, and I, you wouldn't pass it up either. <laughs> I did love that. 
and his and that's when his dad finds out he's a time traveler because he walks in on himself With pleasuring himself. himself and his dad is so shocked and he goes downstairs and he's like dad I'm not gay like that was just whatever like I'm not gay and he's like I am a cellist like I don't care if you're gay there were two of you he's a violinist okay yeah I am a string instrument player <laughs> Uh, what's your second Dunzo, John? Well, my second Dunzo goes to best sculpture. And that will go to Claire's first sculpture. Do you know what I'm referring to? So Claire is an artist. And again, they're able to kind of fund their lifestyle because he sort of gives her lotto numbers to play and they have stock tips and stuff like that. So they do use the time travel, but Claire is still a pretty successful artist. And she talks about her first sculpture. And that comes from when Claire is 16, she is assaulted by a boy in her class. And she basically, 16-year-old her, asks older Henry, who is visiting, I need you to kill somebody. And I was worried that that sort of thing would be sort of too much too quick about, oh, I guess he can get away with murder now. But they do a really good sort of take on the revenge thing where Henry gets really pissed off because he this is his wife and he threatens this high schooler with a gun and says, get in my trunk. They go out to the woods they don't kill him. She just wants to see this high schooler hurt. And the way that it kind of resolves itself is that it's the thing that pushes Henry to finally realize, or the thing that pushes Henry to finally admit that Claire is his future wife because it is such a highly intense situation. But it also becomes the sort of moment for Claire to assert herself as a, as a character, which I didn't see a lot of before that. And I do think is kind of a general issue with the show that we can talk to later, but the, she basically has this high school rapist tied up to a tree and she invites all of the other women who have been too afraid to talk out against him, write all of their stories on him and on the tape that he's tied up to and on his face and stuff. And she's like, and this is my first sculpture. It was harrowing. It was emotional. It was scary. It was, it was surprising too. And I think that was the thing that really got me about that scene was that I thought it could have just played out as like, Oh, these are the lack of consequences that uh, Henry could face. He could, he can enact justice, but it's like, no, this is, I like the way that that turned throughout that scene. I, so here are my takeaways from that scene was that Henry was very desensitized to violence. He was pretty ready to kill him. And you realize that, oh, well, he's always time warping into random places and getting into fights with people because 
if you if there's just some naked dude in a park, like the cops are going to tackle him, you know, or whatever. One time he teleports onto somebody and it's a biker and he gets in a fight with him. Um, and it's a really brutal fight, too. Yeah. And so by the time the situation comes up, he's very desensitized to violence and to the idea that maybe he will kill him. I don't know if he knew that he didn't kill him because it seemed like he was pretty ready to do it. And it was Claire that ends up talking him out of killing him. Yeah. Even though she's the one that suggested it. Yeah. So that was one of my big takeaways was Henry and violence. And the other one was that statue part of it. It didn't really land for me. I Mm. felt like it was designed to make you feel something without making without highlighting the moment enough like it felt like it passed by kind of quickly that's fair i came up a little quickly and at that point i also was like wait she's an artist yeah i thought about it more after the fact i guess than i did in the actual moment and that is kind of an interesting thing about the show too is that as you might be able to tell from listening to this conversation it's a lot of moments that are sort of very loosely strung together. So it is very difficult to sort of grab onto any one single thing because this character is quite literally usually thrown into another scenario very quickly. He doesn't stick around places for very long. And so you as a viewer are not privy to longer interactions with this character and these characters together, at least for a lot of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, So now I want to ask you, John, about the movie, because I didn't watch the movie. Neither of us have read the book. And I just wanted to ask you your, uh, how you'd compare the adaptations. As adaptations. I mean, one of the, I was reading the reviews of the movie again, starring Rachel McAdams and Eric Bana from 2009. The movie is seemingly a very distilled version of the events of the book. And as a result of that, a lot of the stuff that I found most nuanced and more sort of interesting were left out of the movie. And so therefore it was just kind of trying to get through this story as much as you could. It was very just generally linear, either like through her point of view or through his, there was never really much jumbling. That being said though, I did find the relationship between Rachel McAdams and Eric Bana more compelling than the one between Theo James and Rose Leslie. And Mm. For me, I think that was a bit on Rose Leslie. I just didn't find her. There were times that I really bought into her situation. And I would hope that they would develop sort of the loneliness that came from being the time traveler's wife a little bit more as she gets older. Because from her point of view, the show basically ends when she is 21 at least from like the earliest sort of part of that timeline. She oh, also you mean when she's married. When she's married, yeah. She gets married at 21. 
And from her perspective, that is generally the end of, so there's still a lot of room for her to grow. But that is a big issue with, I think, the adaptation being called The Time Traveler, well, and the book being called The Time Traveler's Wife. And I would hope that the book itself would be a little bit more centered on Claire as a character. As written, he is the more compelling part of this show. He is given a lot more to do. Yeah, he definitely feels more like the main character to me than the time traveler's wife in the show. And we haven't touched on actually the fact that the show has talking head portions to it. They're being interviewed. Yeah. They're being interviewed by, I don't know if it's by someone or if they're just talking into a camera to like log a diary as he's presumably dying because between 41 and 42, he looks awful when he's 42 and he looks relatively healthy when he's 41 and he's gaunt, he's gray. He's got this kind of FDR sitting with a blanket over his legs feel to him. (laughs) I mean, it's, he's not in good shape. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why are we having, why is this the office all of a sudden that we're talking into a camera? Is that a part of the movie? No, it's not at all. But the sort of older Henry stuff is, a big part of the movie. The value that I got from the movie was getting the sort of completion of the story that started with the show. That's where I found it to be just most helpful because I mean, should we talk about it now or should we talk about it later? The stuff of the movie. And I would think that they would get to it in the show with diving more into their difficulties conceiving. And do you know how they conceive the child that they end up having? I mean, I have an idea. Because <laughs> they hint at it at the end tag, but uh, yeah. <laughs> she gets uh, older. Older Claire gets freaky with uh, younger Henry before he gets, because it's revealed in the last episode that he oh. got a vasectomy. Oh, you That's thought it might how be Gomez? Got around the vasectomy. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't think about it too hard, but I was wondering. I was like, oh, it's botched vasectomy. Mm-hmm. And another main character that is left out entirely from the show, presumably they would get to him later, was there's this whole part of the show that Henry doesn't want to go to a doctor because he feels like he's going to be taken to an Area 51 scenario. And eventually, though, at least according to the movie, he does. He goes to a genealogist who kind of tells him everything about himself and starts to study him. And Ian, this is the detail that I was very excited to tell you about that I texted you about last night. Do you know who plays the genealogist in the movie? Fred Malamed. Close. Stephen Tobolowsky. Tobo! Yeah. Everyone, if you haven't listened to the Tobolowsky Files podcast, (laughs) I highly recommend it. I love Tobo. Oh, my God. He's my guy. Ian looks like... Bill Hader Stefan character right now, hands clasped over the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very- you you're right. You know me, John. You know how to push my buttons. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big old Steven Tobolowski button on my heart. Yeah. And I know how to modulate it and press it when it when it comes into play. <laughs> and basically like the last part of the movie is sort of dealing with Henry's sort of inevitable death. And he does die at the end of presumably the book and the movie. And 
he do you know how he dies? Have you heard this at all? I assume it's like cancer or something. So they allude to it in the show. There's a scene where young Claire hears her dad shoot something and then she sees blood and then the blood disappears. Oh. Her dad and brother while hunting shoot a version of Henry that has time traveled back to when she was a kid. And then he comes back and presumably, at least in the movie, he dies in Claire's arms with his daughter also present. And also it's gotten to a point where he can't do his running and fighting and stealing because at one point he time travels to the, like the middle of winter and he lose the reason he's in a wheelchair is because he loses both of his feet to frostbite. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's what those feet are that are in the one scene in the pilot, I think, that are just, it's like two feet just standing there. And he's like, well, those are mine. And that's a pretty good ending. I got to say. Yeah. I I would not have seen it coming. So there was certainly a lot more. And again, all of those events were kind of compacted and sort of sprinted through in the movie in order to get through everything. But I think I do believe that there was a lot more to explore in those, in this world with the expanding of more seasons. Well then, why don't we take a quick commercial break and we'll talk about why it got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. After six episodes, the time traveler and the time traveler's wife met their demise (laughs) as the show was announced it was canceled on July 1st, 2022. And there wasn't much of an explanation given. It was just a kind of boilerplate released by HBO saying, we really liked it, but the story won't continue. Thank you, Stephen Moffat. Whatever. You know, the stars were great. Okay, bye. (laughs) Um, So you have to read into everything a little bit here. The interesting thing to me and why I highlighted it at the very beginning of our discussion is that it had an 87% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, Mm -hmm. but it had a 37% critic score. That's really interesting, too, because the movie has, I think, very similar ratings as well. The movie I saw on like a $32 million budget made like $70 million at the box office, but it only had like a 40 on Metacritic. Kind of interesting. I was just looking at it. So the TV show clocked a 37%. The movie clocked a 38%. (laughs) <laughs> it was the main reason I didn't see the movie when it came out. I was because critics didn't like it. But the audience score for the movie is only 59% as okay, opposed so, to the show. So still better, but... Yeah, so I think fans really enjoyed the show. Fans of the book that watched it really liked it. I could see but that. I think that the critical ratings were probably a turnoff. Um, a lot of the online chatter about this show is about the grooming aspect and yeah. people feeling kind of icky about it. And so they didn't tune in or give it a chance. They tried to make it a little bit less icky by, I think, addressing it head on 
and talking about the grooming aspect of it. But Eva Claire says it at one point. She says, no one should beat their soulmate when they're six. It's like, yeah, but she yes. also says, I groomed you, Henry. Which is a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get why people would face value, think it's icky. I get at least wow. the rules of the book. Wow. And the rules of the scenario. <laughs> They do hook up like the minute she's 18, but I don't know. It's a weird thing, but I do think it is ultimately a story about love. Uh, Yeah. And not to say his name again, but Stephen Moffat gave a very passionate defense of the book. And again, this is written by Audrey Niffenegger. Like, it's not like this was created out of the movie or the TV show. Like, this is this is canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a weird scenario. They do bring it up, but I don't know. I mean, you wouldn't have a picnic with your wife's younger self. No, I do once a I, year if you were going back in time. Like I did think about that. Like, yeah, I didn't meet my wife until she was. We were both eighteen, and from everything I hear about my wife as a kid, she seems like an absolute blast. And so I would have loved to just like hang out with her as a kid. I think that just would have been fun. Would I have had romantic feelings for her? Absolutely not. But just as a person, that would have been, that would have been cool. I don't know. This is kind of a weird discussion, but it is a weird one. Yeah. Such a big part of the story that I understand why people are turned off by it. And I understand why. Literally every interview, this comes up. Like, you cannot talk about this story without bringing this up because it is a third of the story. Yeah. I mean, so it turned people off. I think, so people that loved the book loved it. People that didn't know anything about it either saw the bad critic scores or saw the weird storyline and just didn't give it a chance. Or if you're me, you know, it just looked like a schmaltzy melodrama and I didn't really need to engage as an audience member. For sure. There's especially like novel adaptations that I know of as like novels that people discuss. And when they get adapted into movies or TV shows or something, I am very susceptible to how it is received on a critical level. And I, if something isn't worth my time or if something is received poorly, especially from critics, I usually don't give it my time. What about if like a friend is like, no, no, no. Like you got to check it out. Depends on the friend. Mm -hmm. I don't know if some of my friends are listening, maybe you should evaluate whether or not I trust your opinion. Who knows? Yeah. If I'm telling you to watch Joe Para, you know, you're not going to do it. Well, this has just become too much when it comes to the Joe Para thing. But there are no, there are. I trust all of my friends, and it just does depend how like my gut feels about a lot of that stuff. But generally, I do like. There's the adaptation of what is it? Where the Crawdads Sing, which I've heard is a good book, but it's like a 35 on Rotten Tomatoes right now, and I'm like, nah, I'm good. But then you get something like Gone Girl, which. I wasn't that interested in. And then I was like, I kept hearing good things about the movie. I was like, 
oh, okay, I'll give it a go. And I ended up reading the whole book in like a week wow. or two before the movie came out. And I absolutely loved it. And and this was just another one where like I had heard about The Time Traveler's Wife when the movie came out. Critics didn't like it. So I was like, I don't need this in my life. Show came out. I was like, I don't need this in my life. And it felt it just felt unnecessary. And I do want to talk about too, like where HBO Max is as a and Warner Warner in particular is as a platform because it's interesting. New Line, I believe, is the production company that produced the movie and the show. I saw New Line's credits on the end of the show as well. And so it was already a Warner property, like the rights to the book. So I don't think they needed to, maybe they needed to throw a couple extra bucks towards uh, Audrey Niffenegger to adapt this into a show. But generally, it was still their property. And it seems like HBO as a subsidiary of Warner is really taking a much more critical eye to what the next step in their evolution as a platform is going to be, especially as Warner brothers and discovery merged earlier in 2022, which is crazy. I didn't even know about it. My wife worked for the show. She was an associate producer on dropped on TLC or discovery plus every week and she didn't even know about the Discovery and Warner Brothers Warner Brothers merger. Yeah, the new company is called Warner Brothers Discovery. Like wow, one title crazy. after AT&T dropped Warner Brothers. And yeah, I only know about it really because it's part of my job. I analyze the telecom and media industry for work and they pay me to do it. So I need to like stay on top of this stuff. And that's also how I know that HBO Max and Discovery Plus are almost certainly going to be merged into one platform, which is going to make that one entity much more sort of critical of what content is housed where. There's also been this like big push for like TNT has dropped all of their scripted shows as well. They're part of the Warner Brothers family, like Snowpiercer has been doing really well for them. They're doing their fourth season and they got canceled. There was another like Nassim Pedrad show, Chad, I heard, got, they filmed their entire second season and then TNT dropped them. So they're hoping to get another um, home for that because it's a done product. Wait, so, so they're why not even going to air the second season? TNT is not. No. Whoa. So it's stuff like that that's happening. And on the HBO level, I'm sure that's happening too. It's like, what is the cost benefit here? What does this mean for, where does this fit in the future of our brand? And yeah. I think Time Traveler's Wife just didn't get enough traction for them to sort of build it up into that sort of prestige level TV and movies that HBO has for decades built their legacy on their brand on yeah like you know hbo is the armani network and discovery shows are the coles you know oh i was gonna go kmart kmart's there was a kmart in new york up until pre-covid it closed nice. just pre-covid it was a trip to but you know to what shop there it's cheap and you're gonna find what you need 
Well, John, speaking of cheap and finding what you need, I got a question for you. Would you renew? I would not have expected that I would want to renew this show. Wow. I got to admit, went into it just being like, hey, six episode show, probably not going to like it, but hey, I'll give it a go. First few episodes, I was not really invested in it. I was like, this just seems like a lot of surface level exposition and stuff. But honestly, as it evolved and as we started to kind of see the bigger pieces of this puzzle, some of the more disparate ones getting put together, the big reason we asked this question is because would we want to see more of this? Would we want to see where this goes? And I saw enough in these six episodes that I wanted to find out how they were going to deal with this. And honestly, too, having seen, you know, the what is, from my understanding, the full narrative in one form or another play out in the movie version, I got to admit, I got more excited by the prospect of seeing how this approach to that story was going to tackle the things that I knew would be coming because it's darker. It's a little bit more brutal. There's a lot more nuance to it there. I didn't think Rose Leslie was bad. I just didn't think there was enough for her to do. And I thought she got a, there were times, especially when she was filming her confessional stuff or her sort of, you know, office like talk to camera things that it felt a little forced and not really sort of, I just didn't buy it. But I would hope that as they sort of deal with her leaning more or learning more about how to be herself without him around, that was the thing that I was excited to see. And honestly, I just thought Theo James was really good in the show. I thought he was super compelling. I found him to be a really exciting guy to see on the big screen. And I thought he added a lot to the downtrodden but still ultimately needs to be charming and paternal person that he needed to be for this role. I bought it and it took me a bit to buy it, but I was ready for it. I was ready for season two. I would have watched season two. That's pretty classic for some of these shows that it's like the first episode or two, you're like, eh, I don't know. And then it and then it picks up, which is even for one season shows or even for shows that last 10 years, that's just TV, you know? Yeah. So that's it is pretty TV. normal. It is pretty normal, but the jigsaw element of it where you you know that he's going to die later, like probably by the, by the end of the pilot, you're like, dude's doomed. And you know by the end that, you know, she's going to be sad and but she's eventually going to marry. And you kind of know what the basic beat of it is going to be by the end of the first episode, I think. But the way that it came together and the way that they sort of used plot lines and moments as sort of motifs, it really brought me into the world a lot more. And I like when it's like, oh, this is what that meant. And that's what, that's how this connects. This is how, Claret, you know, 20 connects to Claret 29 and things like that. I really liked 
putting that stuff together. And I found it to be much more enjoyable than see it play out again in a much more linear fashion like it does in something like Ordinary Joe. Mm. Like you've talked about how you as a viewer like to put the pieces together. Yeah, like I can appreciate the construction of Ordinary Joe. So, yeah, I will time travel with the time traveler. And that means you're dead. I'm super duper dead. Ian, now the question falls to you. Would you renew? I would not renew. I think this is the first time we disagree, actually. I was I was thinking that this would be the case, and... I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. I'm so excited that I disagree with you. I'm so let's, excited that you disagree with me. Let's freaking fight. No, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm driving up to Milwaukee now. Yeah, uh, get my cow taser, my cow, uh, cattle prod. <laughs> Bring well, it up there. I'll get my army of hooligans to uh, surround the home. That's why. That's why I enlisted them from the John. Even fields. your hooligans don't return your phone calls. They will when I put up the signal. That's what I pay them for. The hooligan signal. Uh, we'll go in an hour. <laughs> um, I just felt like this show was a really expensive lifetime show. I mean, it was the concept is cool, and it did make me want to read the book if I ever read books. Uh, I really liked the time traveling aspect of it. I liked that it made sense, even though scientifically it didn't matter on that level i sense a butt coming and not, a, not and not theo james's butt i did not care for theo james um he annoyed wow. me wow wow and it's not just cuz he's a pretty boy it was i don't know i mean it didn't i didn't feel much range there and Everybody praises his performance for having so much nuance in the different ages. And I didn't think there was. I just felt like he was like, oh, younger Henry, jerk. Older Henry, wise. And I didn't care. You know, I didn't care about him as a character. Um, and I didn't mind that he was going to die. Uh, <laughs> Sounds I like somebody's jealous. I did not mind. I didn't care for older Claire either. Uh, she reminded me of a weird Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, um, that was the thing that when I was talking about what I didn't really like about her performance, that was the part that it, it was a bit too like, when I was your age. It was a lot of that kind of cadence that I was like, okay. Yeah, I thought the talking heads element of it was weird and probably unnecessary. I think the talking heads were being built up to be the tapes that are being sent to their daughter. Okay. That's my guess. Knowing what I know now. Yeah, I guess I get that. I, I didn't need that. And uh, I hated the soundtrack. Yeah. It was really, that. really schmaltzy, like in a, in the bad way. Mm hmm. I know that the makeup is part of it and I understand 
why they did older, younger makeup on the different actors. But sometimes it, I really hated Henry's dad's older makeup <laughs> and younger makeup. He never looked the right age, ever. Yeah, Even he was like James Wolk in Ordinary Joe. Never looked the right age. <laughs> yeah, he's like 37. Supposed yeah. to be 30. Um, and... I don't know. Overall, I just, uh, I don't care. I would have, even if I watched the first season willfully, I would have ignored the second season because there are second seasons of shows that I enjoy that I have not watched still. And I never would have come back around to this. And for those reasons, I'm out. And this is Shark Tank. Well, looky Lou, Mary Sue. And we've got ourselves a conflict. But you know what? I didn't respect you before we started taping, and I still don't respect you. So I think we're at the same place. Yeah. I think we'll get through it. Snake eating its own tail. (laughs) John, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? Yeah. One of the big things that took me out of this was the set for the clearing in the meadow. The main... Sort Thank of you. Thank place. You. It was so much a soundstage that it drove me a little crazy. I've never seen, so they constantly are like playing checkers on this rock, like young Claire and older Henry, and she hides clothes for him underneath this rock. When has there ever been space underneath a rock? Never. <laughs> Never in the history of rocks, which is long. John, has there ever time been... traveling. You can't give them space under a rock? No. No. <laughs> I cannot. When, that's, when the rock looks like styrofoam, when the plants look like silicone, I will not give them a convenient sort of almost drawer-like quality to a gigantic boulder. No, sir Ree. I will not do that. Also, just one other thing. They could have been so much more creative with the promotional campaign for Time Traveler's Wife. You've got a guy who is theoretically jumping in and out of a bunch of different times in history, and you don't make a fake subreddit or something or like a Twitter account that's like the naked man of Chicago. Why not? That would have been fun. That could have been a weird little thing because I... Anytime he sort of popped up in a public place and he was completely nude, I was like, who isn't like pulling out their phone and making a deal about this? Because it made a little bit more sense when the novel was published in 2003. But now that 42-year-old Henry is in 2022, at least according to the canon of this show, we've got over a decade of smartphone usage for these events to be captured and put on social media. They could have done that. They could have done a fun real world thing for that. So just something that irked me that it was, it felt like a missed opportunity. Oh, what about you? Anything Um, else? My lingering thoughts are that it was a good COVID show to shoot because it made sense how few people there were around. And And most of the scenes, it's just the two of them at different ages. And yet ironically, they had a huge wedding even though they seemingly had zero friends and family. Uh, that's a really good point. 
actually. Their wedding was huge. It was even though they both pres- don't get along with their families. Wow. Yeah. It was a huge wedding. I was like, and they I only have it, two friends. Yeah. And no colleagues because one is an artist and the other is a librarian. Oh, I for- we got I guess we forgot to mention that Henry's a librarian. <laughs> yeah, it's not important. It's like <laughs> The, yeah, I guess it's not important, but yeah, huge wedding though. So, but you're right. It was a good COVID show otherwise, other than the gigantic wedding that they had. And then also there are no hot dog carts near the lake in Chicago because nope. there is, I think it's like a health code thing, but also, you know, Chicago's run by a bunch of greedy SOBs that <laughs> just I don't know. I don't know why, but they don't give out licenses for that sort of thing. So that took me out of it. She doesn't put mustard on the hot dog the right way. She His mom she, also calls uh, the Field Museum the Natural History Museum. Thank you. That really bothered me. It really bothered mm-hmm. me that it was in Chicago because it was like barely in Chicago until all of a sudden it was. The movie is in Chicago, too. So that must have been so part the book, of the novel. Yeah. Uh, the author's from Chicago. Gotcha. And I don't think I've talked on this podcast about the willing suspension of disbelief, but that is a long way of saying there is a promise between the audience and the thing you're watching that you know it is not real, but you give up your disbelief. So you willingly suspend your disbelief in order to buy into the story that's happening and in a perfect world, forget that you're watching anything at all and just be in the story. I never felt sucked in to this story. Yeah, I never was unaware of my surroundings or the fact that I was watching a TV show. And that more than anything, I think bugged me because there were cool themes There were cool, deep themes about life and love and, you know, what it means to be human and how you should be in the now and how you should groom your butt. uh, Exactly. How you should, how many sit-ups you have to do to have that kind of eight pack. Mm -hmm. So it was, that was cool, but I'm going to give it up all to the book and I want to read the book, but I don't care about the show. (laughs) So you can tweet at us at one and done TV. You can follow us on Instagram at one and done TV. You can email us at one and done pod at gmail.com. Go to our website, one and done TV.com. Um, you can Venmo me at Hamill chin. And last but not least, John, did you get anything in the mail today? I was waiting to talk to you about this. Yes. Ian, and his wife, Natalie, sent me a Lodge Pants scraper. And oh, yeah. told me that I should make sure to watch How To with John Wilson. No. We said you should watch Joe Para. No. In the note. Nope. Um, actually, it says How To with John Wilson, I believe. Does it really? Oh. Yeah, I think Honestly, so. Honestly, I was about to say, that was actually all Natalie. She told I me figured she did it. it. Yeah, and I yeah. was like, that is such a good bit. I wish I would have thought of it. Yeah. Enjoy those Lodge Pan Scrapers, buddy. They'll they'll change your life. We just got it. Still in the packaging, but 
It'll be next to the sink. And I, I look forward to hopefully singing its praises alongside you. But next man, time you was, got a crusty bowl, you'll see. Man, was that a good bit. Man, was that a good bit. Yeah, she's funny. Yeah. And with that, I believe we are done. Beep. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.